Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place where we talk about oil and diesel, and you need to drill to get oil. So that's why we call the show Drilling Deep. But we just don't talk about petroleum. We talk about lots of other stuff. We drill into it. And today we're going to be speaking to P. Sean Garney of Scopolitas Consulting, and he'll talk about many things. Uh, Sean knows a lot. He can jump from topic to topic, so we're going to take advantage of that big knowledge. I watch closely the retail price of diesel and the futures price of diesel, but what I watch even closer is the spread between diesel and crude. I do that because it used to be relatively predictable, or at least predictable in a narrow range, and now it's gone completely nuts. In 2021, the spread between Brent crude and ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange averaged about 37 cents per gallon. In the year we just finished, it was closer to $1.19 per gallon. That's truly an astounding change in one year. And that's not just the kind of thing that some geek trader or geek analyst looks at. That sort of spread eventually makes its way into the pump price for diesel. And it's one of the reasons why this year a lot of diesel consumers were scratching their heads as they heard on the news that crude prices were falling, and they looked at the sign outside of retail outlets and couldn't figure out why diesel wasn't falling that much, and the spread with gasoline was blowing out to levels they'd never seen before. As I've discussed here before, my view has always been that it was IMO 2020 finally rearing its head two years late. IMO 2020 is a rule that went into effect in, yes, 2020, that required sulfur limits in marine fuels to be far more stringent than they were previously. The issue for diesel is that the way to get there, the way to make fuels, marine fuels that meet that spec, was to take a lot of distillate molecules out of the diesel pool and jet fuel pool and put them into that marine fuel pool. That's, that's quite a tongue twister, fuel pool. But as the market braced for it, we had this little thing called the pandemic. You might have heard about it. And now the world had lots of everything because it needed a lot less. So the impact from IMO 2020 on diesel markets never hit the way that it was supposed to. It started to show up in 2021 and then came roaring back in 2022. If you take the price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange and compare it to the price of Brent crude, as I mentioned, it was about 39 cents in 2021, and it was about $1.20 this past year. You can say that's because of tight refining capacity, but that would have affected gasoline too, and it didn't. Gasoline did strengthen against crude, but nowhere like it did with diesel. I blame IMO 2020 for that. So it was notable that a consulting firm called Energy Aspects came out with its projections for 2023 recently. What it looked at was that spread, that spread between crude and diesel. Let's note here that the price of diesel at the pump is mostly going to be a function of the price of crude, and I am not projecting where crude is headed because I do not know. But the EA projections so far are for the spread between crude and diesel. There are several numbers in there, and I could take any of them. But they looked at spot market. They didn't look at retail prices. They looked at spot price for diesel versus crude. So we're going to look at just one of the, one of the numbers that they did. It's the spread of ultra-low sulfur diesel traded in the Gulf Coast versus the price of light Louisiana sweet, which is a benchmark crude grade. That spread averaged a little less than $50 per barrel last year, 2022, but that's a little misleading. It was below 50 on average only because the first quarter was significantly lower than that. In the last three quarters of the year, it was on either side of $55 per barrel. Note that in 2021, 
it averaged a bit more than $16 per barrel. And what do they see for 2023? Much of the same. The spread is projected at more than, 20, more than $55 in the first quarter, and then it sinks below 50 for the rest of the year, but not by much. So what that means is that we don't know what crude is going to do, but if energy aspects is correct, we're looking at the strength of diesel compared to crude to mostly stay in place. The bottom line for consumers then is that any softening of diesel prices from here on in is going to have to come from crude. It won't come from diesel going back to its historic spread with crude. That is not good news if you're a diesel user. There is another voice out there, though, about marine fuels who sees the exact opposite. We're going to talk about him next week. You're just going to have to tune in. We're going to move on here on Drilling Deep, as we always do at this point. It's still really not too early in the new year that to talk about what might happen over the course of 2023. Since the start of the podcast, we've always talked every year, right around this time, either at the end of the, the year that's going away or the start of the new year, to Scope Leaders Consulting. And we're going to do that again today. P. Sean Garney is here to keep up the tradition. He, has, uh, he is the co-director of Scope Leaders Consulting, which is the consulting arm affiliated with the giant truckload-focused law firm, Scope Leaders. And he joins us here today on Drilling Deep. Sean, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, John. Love uh, love this podcast, and uh, you know, big fan, longtime listener, occasional contributor. Okay. So happy to be very here. good. So, so you were on the road this week, seeing some clients, and of course, you, like any consultant, you do a lot of that. Uh, what are your consultants feeling these days? I mean, they have been through just some wild whipped trucking market. You know, you go from a pretty weak market in 2019 to really the the the, the bottom for a little bit there in 2020. And then a market that absolutely roared for about two years and one that's now hitting kind of new lows in terms of certain measurements. I mean, this is I can't imagine what it's like to try to manage through something like this. How are they feeling today after all that that those good times and those battered times? Yeah, John, that's a great question. You're absolutely right. It's been a it's been a wild roller coaster for for a lot of our clients. And some of the some of the problems and challenges have been the ones that we've We've known and understood for years and years, right? Talking about driver shortage and driver hiring and how to facilitate a quick but safe process to onboard drivers. But some of them are new too. You talked about sort of the roaring market um, in the last two years. And that was coupled with the inability to get equipment and, um, you know, lots of additional smaller motor carriers sort of coming out of the woodworks and creating their own authorities and it created a challenge to growth, right? There's lots of opportunities out there, but how do we grow? And we saw a lot of companies started, starting to grow through M&A. And that creates like this environment of explosive growth, right? Like I had, you know, X number of trucks and I just doubled the size of my fleet. Like how do I, how do I adapt my staff and my processes to, to manage all that, you know, a huge new number of trucks and a huge new number of drivers, how do I create great safety programs to sort of help facilitate that? So we've been talking with a lot of carriers now as as things sort of start to settle down at least a little bit about how do I adapt my programs to, to be larger, to be bigger, to be better? Um, that's been a, a big focus. Or how do I streamline my processes, um, you know, to help uh, to help facilitate driver hiring and that sort of thing? Or even more like, Things have been going so fast. Now we're slowing down. I better take a breath 
I better look back at my operation, audit what I'm doing, and make sure that I'm still compliant and still safe, right? And so I think this sort of lull over 2022 um, brought a lot of business our way with a lot of carriers that finally had an opportunity to take a breath and and look at their operations and say, okay, now it's time to like reshuffle the deck to get things set, you know, and to to focus on compliance, focus on safety, focus on operations. Um, so it's been it's been pretty wild, and this year's been um, been pretty busy as a result. Twenty twenty two has just started, obviously. Yeah, I, I would guess before that, a lot of it was a lot of the work was just coming in every day and trying to get through it, handling all the freight that was out there, trying to get people seated into the truck and behind the wheel. And what you're saying is that mm-hmm. that's not quite the crisis that it was. So therefore, it gives you a chance to look at other things. Yeah, I mean. Like I said at the top, some of the same concerns exist and will exist for the for the long term future, right? How do I how do I seat a driver quickly? Because if I don't, I'm going to lose that driver. So that's that's still still a concern. Will be a concern for a long time. But yeah, in other in other areas, yeah, people are are taking a breath and they're um, they're really you know, refocusing their efforts. You now coming in from the outside, because I'm not a life lifetime trucker. Uh, been you know been writing about this now for about five years, but mergers and acquisitions always I found interesting in trucking because this is as we know um, in not, certainly not an LTL but certainly in truckload uh, this is an industry with very low barriers to entry you know classic definition and so I would I would imagine that there's a lot more of a difficult decision to make in uh, whether you you know grow organically or whether you go out and make an acquisition. Now, if, you, if you're in a really hot market, you can understand why you want to make an acquisition because that's going to come with a bunch of trucks. It's going to come with a bunch of drivers and capacity is a real issue. But the, the problem with that, as I see, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that you inevitably end up buying at the top because you're going in to get more capacity mm-hmm. when the market is really hot. It would seem that a time like this, when capacity is not really an issue, uh, is the time to is the time to maybe make an acquisition. But the problem is, is, I would imagine this is also a time when you can grow organically. So where do you see that sort of, uh, you know, grow versus buy uh, decision that goes on in trucking on M&A? And, and what are the things that, that really make it make a company go one way or the other? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and a difficult one. I think that, you know, when capacity drives the market, right? Freight and capacity drive the market. And um, if you're looking to access, you know, lots of capacity quicker, like truck orders take a long time, right? It takes a while to seat drivers. Now truck orders are starting to finally come back a little bit, right? I can, I'm, I'm starting to get the equipment that I, that I wanted a long, long time ago. And so organic growth might make a little sense. I mean, there's pluses and minuses to, to both in, in one sense, like organic growth is easier to sort of hold and maintain your your traditions and your cultures, you know, and grow in a very deliberate way. Whereas, you know, M&A can be a little bit more challenging from that respect, sort of folding in, um, folding in other operations into what you've built. There's a lot of pride of ownership in trucking. You know, when you talk to trucking companies, they're very often very proud of what they've built. And um, so you could see them wanting to grow sort of naturally as far as, um, you know, when it's best to buy a trucking company, I think there's just a lot of factors. You're probably right that um, that you can get some capacity from other companies a little cheaper now and, and very deliberate companies will will go out and do that. But so often it's 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 like, wow, I've got high rates and lots of freight out there. How do I go get that? Right. How do I react to that? Maybe that's not the right way, but 
Um, I just think it's the way the way that I observe it happening. To the Benish, yeah, I went to the Benish law firm. Uh, they have a, an annual meeting in New York that just basically talks about private equity investing in trucking. Mm-hmm. And one thing they said is that you know the market has definitely come down, but some of the sellers, some of the owners, have in their heads the valuations that they may have made you know a year ago mm-hmm. when the market was rocket high. And so they are yeah. kind of hard. They're reluctant to give away those numbers. They they still think of their the valuation of their company as the same. Let's switch to Washington because you're in Washington. You do a lot of work sure. for your clients on yeah. letting them know what's, what's going on in Washington. What are some mm-hmm. federal rules or regulations that are coming up here in 2023 that are, A, really significant and, and or, B, maybe you've kind of flown under the radar now that the industry isn't fully aware that they're, uh, they're over the horizon? Yeah. You know, this year should be an interesting year. Um, you know, we're we're at the tail end of the first term of the Biden administration first or maybe final. We'll have to see um, when the election happens. But um, and so typically now is the time where we see like a, a quick acceleration of rulemaking, right? Like it's time to get your legacy rules out the door um, and get them moving. What we're looking at this year, though, if you look at the unified agenda, there's only about four rules on the agenda that are scheduled to go final this year. And none of them are very significant. The big ticket items, the ones that we read about in the press a lot, like speed limiters, unique IDs, ELD revisions, um, you know, safety fitness procedures, all of those are actually scheduled to go to notice or proposed rulemaking, which is one step short of of a final rule. Um, So we'll have to see how you know, how FMCSA can can accelerate here. The, the way that they write rules has changed in the last 10 years due to, due to you know, congressional action. And now significant rulemakings are required to go to uh, an advanced notice or proposed rulemaking, a very early step before they can go to a proposed rulemaking. That slowed the whole process down. So I think we'll see some interesting things happen this year, um, but most of them will be sort of interim steps. Um, Going to final rule, we might see a hair testing rule come out of the Department of Health and Human Services. It was supposed to come out in December. We haven't seen it yet. That is probably one of the slower agencies as far as rulemakings go. But that uh, that could have a significant impact on the industry if they go with what was proposed in the proposed rule where um, you're allowed to use hair testing. But if you do and they test positive, you need a confirmatory urine analysis. That's going to change the state of play with with hair testing because it it now becomes it makes a lot less sense for me to do a hair test if I've got to follow up with a urine test that might give me a, an opposite result. Right. That 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 creates big challenges. Another one of the things that I think is going to be interesting, and it's only an interim step, it's a notice of proposed rulemaking. Uh, there's, you know, NHTSA and FMCSA are both working on things related to automated vehicles. Uh, and they've had this advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, which is really just them asking questions of the industry. What types of rules do you think we should pull off the books or adapt to make adoption of automated vehicles easier? Um, but what we're expecting to see sometime this year, hopefully early this year, Q1, Q2, is a notice of proposed rulemaking. This is going to be FMCSA's real first, first real indication of what they think they should change um, you know, in order to facilitate automated vehicles. And I think 
that's going to, everybody's going to look at that. The, the automated vehicle makers are going to look at that and they're going to have to start to react, right? They're going to have to start trying to predict what FMCSA is going to do. And that's going to change how they build their products and, and what they're looking at. So, so we'll have to see, you know, we should get a speed limiter second notice of proposed rulemaking sometime this year. And that's for sure going to create a kerfuffle um, because there's a lot of people that aren't going to like it no matter what it says. Um, so there, there should be some interesting things coming out. But as far as final rules, the only one of, of any interest uh, really is uh, a final rule on the definition of a, a tank vehicle. Um which is way in the weeds and we don't even have to talk about it, but it was, it's been laying dormant since, since 2013, all of a sudden it pops up in the federal register. It could have a, it could have an impact on the number of drivers that need a tank vehicle endorsement. Um, but we'll have to see, you know, Hutchinson well, so, and, so you, and her administration have, Oh, go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say, when you say four rules, going back to what you first said, I'm assuming that means four FMCSA rules. Because, of course, the, yes. the independent contractor rule, which has been proposed, is not an mm-hmm. FMCA proposal. It's coming under the Department of Labor, but obviously could have major impact on trucking. Uh, do you expect that rule will kind of pretty much look like the proposal? And, you know, everybody's got their own theory about what kind of impact it's going to make on the independent uh, owner-operator model. You know, there's some apocalyptic views. I don't tend to share those. Um, these things mm-hmm. usually work out, but what would, what do you think is the impact of the independent contractor rule if if it's impl- implemented as written on the trucking sector yeah so that that one it's on the unified agenda for a march delivery um that would be pretty quick but but the administration has been acting quickly on this rule you know they rescinded they tried to rescind the trump rule you know days after biden was uh was inaugurated and and so they have been moving quickly on it i think I think it could have big impacts. I, I wouldn't use the word apocalyptic, but, um, you know, because there's a, a whole bunch of enforcement questions at play here. But, you know, it's a pivot. It's a pretty big pivot from from Trump's rule that talked about sort of the degree of control and the workers opportunity for profit and loss as core determinations. Right. Or determinant factors. Those are the most important ones. And and Biden tries to instead use this sort of. um you know, an equal weighing of the six factors, uh, totality of circumstance sort of uh, view on whether or not a, a worker should be defined as an independent contractor or, or an employee. Um, and that's going to make it that's going to make it a lot more difficult to to have an independent contractor or a lot easier to to reclassify an independent contractor as an employer. And that that could have big impacts. I mean, there were 54,000 comments to that docket. Like that is an absurd 54.4 thousand something. That's a lot of comments. So there's a lot of strong opinions out there. And many, many, many of those opinions are in favor of allowing independent contractor status because our economy has fundamentally changed, not just trucking, you know, but people are out there wanting to deliver groceries on Instacart or supplement their pay doing that. And, and a lot of the independent contractors in the trucking industry love what they do, you know. And yeah, so I, there's there's a lot of pushback. And, you know, we've seen Trump act. We've seen Biden act. We'll see how the next person acts anyway. You know, it's a it's an open question. 
Well, this is this is the the, the, the point too that I mean, we, as you noted, we were already two years almost to the day uh, looking back from when uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated, and that means two years to the day when he will either be reinaugurated or somebody else might be, maybe somebody else from a different party. This rule might not be in effect all that long. You can imagine them trying to just reimplement the Trump rule as quickly as possible. So everybody's going to turn around and try to adjust to this rule. It may not even have that long a shelf life. It's it's. It's a polarizing issue, and and both sides feel very strongly about um, about their opinion on it. So I think you're right. I mean, that that begs the question: like, what does enforcement of this rule ultimately look like? When does it start? How um, you know how strong is it? That's that. Those are the types of things that are really going to um, impact impact on on trucking and the state of play there. I mean. Look at California and AB five. You know we're we're still you know just starting to feel what enforcement might look like over there. So it's certainly not an overnight issue. Carriers have a lot of time now to think about to think about how they're responding, um, how they're how they're treating their independent contractors, and there's a lot of things that they can do um, to to secure their model against, you know, against misclassification threats. And I think they're going to continue to do that. They're, they're getting better at it. You know, we as an industry get better at a lot of things. It's just like nuclear verdicts. We're getting better. We're starting, you know, yeah. we're, we're learning how to, how to defend ourselves against those things and, and how to keep moving forward. We're a creative and innovative industry and we'll, we'll continue to be that. Well, now let's let's go back to AB five. You know, you said the industry is sure. learning about enforcement. If, if so, there you're a little bit ahead of me then, because I mean, my view has always been that right now there really is very little indication from the state on how they intend to enforce it against the trucking sector. I think everybody's looking first. They're looking for that first victim of a state action. They're they're hoping that a it's not them, and b that it's mm-hmm. somebody else that can get clarified pretty quickly to give guidance. Where do you see the state of enforcement yeah. in California on AB five? Yeah, no, I th- I think you're right there. We are we are waiting to see you know who what the the first shoe to drop is going to be, but um, carriers while they're waiting while they're they're hoping um, to get some guidance on that front, they're acting today to secure their model. You know, they're they're adapting their model in a whole host of different ways. There's there's a bunch of really great thinkers. Uh, the firm. Uh, the Scopolius Law Firm, of course, leading the way in a lot of ways there um, to to help carriers adapt their model and to secure it against misclassification. Now, a lot of those theories are yet to be tested, um, but but carriers aren't waiting, right? Right. Let's talk about the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. Um, it's about three years old, which means there's a lot of data in there now. And from what I understand, in the past, if you were a, if you were a carrier and you were looking to hire a driver you would kind of have to reach out to their previous employers to check their drug and alcohol testing history. My understanding is that in the rule this year, you're no longer going to need to do that because that database by this point is just so chock full of information that the view is it's not really necessary. If somebody has had drug or alcohol issues, it probably would have showed up in a test within the last three years. Is that your understanding of the new rule and how big of an impact is that going to have? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, three years in, um, I forget how many millions of queries have been run, but, you know, we've got about 3 million drivers registered, um, you know, uh, 500, 700,000 carriers, something like that. So it's it's pretty much running at full tilt. 
I feel pretty comfortable that the results you're getting in the clearinghouse are reflective of, you know, the driver's drug and alcohol testing history. There's, of course, outliers out there, but I feel comfortable advising carriers to rely on the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. FMCSA has told us that that is now the source of truth when it comes to drug and alcohol testing. Um, some, some carriers, you know, I've spoken to are still are still reaching out to previous employers to try to get that drug and alcohol testing history. But they're not all getting responses, right? Some, you know, some of the folks are reaching out to are saying, hey, well, just go to the clearinghouse because that's where all my data is at. So um, I think it's going to be a help for carriers. Now, they still have to do the previous employer inquiry process to get crashes and dates of employment. And that has always been the most burdensome part of, of vetting your drivers. But, um, but from a clearinghouse perspective, um, I feel really good about the state of play there and the information that it's providing. You know, I, as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking it's three years, you know, time has flown and there was a view that this was going to create a real crisis in capacity. Now, you know, if, if you look at how high rates got, you could say, well, we may have had a capacity crisis then, but maybe it was just too much freight because right now, you know, we measure capacity at, uh, at um, freightways through our outbound tender rejection index. It's down around 4%. I think it peaked out at 22 or 23%. There's certainly no capacity issues. You would think if the drug and alcohol clearinghouse was going to really kneecap a lot of capacity, that we never would have gotten back down to 4%, that we'd have been sort of permanently elevated. I'm, I'm kind of making this theory up at the, you know, as I'm speaking, but uh, give me your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, there were certainly people out there that were worried about you know, the clearinghouse eliminating this huge part of the driver pool. I was never a proponent of that, and I think... If you look at the, you know, the number of drivers, and I've done this analysis, but haven't done it recently, the number of drivers that are being eliminated versus total capacity were, you know, were less than 1%. And, um, you know, the question we got to ask ourselves is which drivers do we want? And which drivers don't we want? You know, um, if a driver tests positive and, you know, wants to remain a truck driver, then they need to do the right thing and go through the substance abuse process and and get to the return to duty uh, space so that they can drive again. And and some of them are doing it, not not as many as we'd hope. Um, but, you know, it's a natural sorting, I think, which is which is good for safety. And I do not think it's had a material impact on capacity. Interesting. That's, that's certainly that was certainly not the conventional wisdom a few years ago. So anyway, uh, boy, we could talk a lot longer, Sean, but, you know, our time is sort of up. So uh, we want to thank P. Sean Garney of Scope Leaders Consulting for joining us here uh, on Drilling Deep to help kick off the year. It's not too late. Happy New Year, Sean. Happy New Year to you. So you have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Waves family of podcasts and video podcasts. You can see us on Freight Waves TV or on all the major podcast platforms. I hope you will join us again. I've been your host, John Kingston. Thanks for tuning in.